this morning. Um, I've really, we've, me and myself and my, my family have felt your warmth. Um, it's really a family um, environment here and I can really feel God's presence and grace upon you all. Um, I'm just going to pray um, before we go into God's word today. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, O oh God, that you are, are so gracious to us. We are sinners. Um, we are uh, weak, O oh God, but you are oh God that is strong, strong for us. We thank you that in our weakness that your strength is made perfect, Lord. We thank you that you are truly gracious and, and mighty God, a wonderful counselor. We thank you that you are the word from above. It's your word that we look to this morning. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us near to you, O oh God, that you would remind us each and every day, and even more so now, of your faithfulness, of your love for us, and that you are God that's so wonderful to us, a God that stretched forth your hand to us and reached out into our lives to bring us out from the miry clay, to set our feet upon the rock, the rock of Christ. So it's you that we look to you right now. Lord, help us, Lord, and draw our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We can turn to James um, chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'm going to read um, from verse 1 to 10, but we're going to focus on verse 6 to 10. James chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, but you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will be he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. I'll stop there. Three points I just wanted to draw from this text, from specifically from verse 6 to 10, is that we must withstand the call of society and we must withstand the call of Satan. And finally, we must withstand the call of the human spirit. See, recently, as we remember on Remembrance Day, just 10.59, a minute to 11 a.m. on the 11th, on the 14th of November, we had that um, issue, the bombing in, in Liverpool, right in front of the hospital. And we had that heroic 
driver, taxi driver, who just narrowly escaped, didn't he? And we think back just of the, the great terrorist attacks previous to that. And often we, we think about these things and for a while we may be fearful, we may think about these things and what's happening in our world. But time passes and we, we move on, don't we? we? We move on, but currently we know how the threat levels, the government has made the threat levels, it's, it's, there's a, as a, as a threat is highly imminent. I wonder how often do we think about our own spiritual warfare? The spiritual warfare that we must face on a daily basis. We are facing threats every day. Personal threats. Threats coming from the world. Threats from Satan himself. What is spiritual warfare? We're standing the pool of society. When we look back at James chapter 4, 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The adulterous people, the Bible states, the context here is that James is addressing are Jewish Christians who've allowed passions within them to rule them in the midst of their poverty, in the midst of their persecutions, that they've been dispersed. They desired and they coveted what others possessed. In doing so, James says here, from right from the verse one, he talks about them quarreling. He talks about them being angry with one another. He uses such strong word as murder. Such untamed tongues has the ability to murder with the mouth. The same tongues that they use to praise God is the same tongues that they use to, to pull down. Mm-hmm. James calls these such people adulterous people. Why? See, we face many challenges as humans. And one of them is the pull of worldly things, worldly lifestyles, worldly situations. The world is, is full of simply just sinful humanity the world is beautiful we know this I was looking at a map this morning such a lovely lake a blue lake near here right there's Niagara Falls and such wonders grandeurs of mountains that God has created the Sahara Desert but it's all in decay the world around is in decay all that is beautiful in this world all that we see Yet saturated with sinners, those who rebel against God as creator. These are those who commit spiritual adultery. See, naturally speaking, someone commits adultery when they break marriage covenants. Holy covenants between a man and a woman. A loving union. See, spiritual adultery here is derived from a Greek word which is better translated as an adulteress. A word the Bible applies to God's people who strayed away constantly, Israelites, away from God. They committed adultery when their intimate relationship with God, their allegiance with God, was always in relapse. Yahweh, their true, the one true God. He's 
come to visit them, to live with them, yet they kept straying away. They were likened to the harlot. But Mark 8, 38 makes use of this word, word in this way. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, Jesus is saying here, Jesus makes it clear that this world, our generation, the society that we know it is spiritually adulterous. What makes the world adulterous? Well, Mark 8, 34, 37 provides the answer. He says, and coming to the, to the crowd, to, I'm sorry, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, finding salvation and satisfaction in this world and the things of this world is at the core of spiritual adultery. In gaining the world, in gaining worldly life and engaging worldly life, we forfeit eternal life with God. It's not worth it at all. See, to gain the world, which is to seek to enjoy all the world has to offer with no regard or knowledge of the self-denying embrace of Christ and him crucified, crucified ends in the forfeit of eternal life and the true everlasting joy that's found in Christ, in union with Christ. See, spiritual adultery is conceived from the attraction of the world and its enticements the rebellious denial of who God is. God is creator, God is mighty and is everlasting, agent of days. Who knows the beginning and who knows the end of God? See, an unbeliever reading the Bible without the desire to, for Jesus to, as Lord over their lives may, yes, see Jesus as a good man. He did good things cannot live a godly life. It's impossible. See now, friendship, if we turn back to James 4, verse 4, it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, friendship here is translated from the word philia. Philia is the word, the root word is, is filial. And this is different from the gapping love that we know, that unconditional love that we've witnessed and we know from God, the sacrificial love that came through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue sinners. That is the agape love. Agape love is the highest form of love referenced in the Bible. Agape is who God is and what he expresses, a love that is not dependent on us being able to reciprocate that love. It's unconditional. This is a love that Jesus demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. 
See, but philia here refers to brotherly love, often experienced in a close relationship. It's where the, the city of Philadelphia gets its name, the city of brotherly love. See, philia illustrates a type of love that is demonstrated to blood relatives expressed to non-family members. It affirms a friend almost as if they are siblings. It's a type of love for the world that James is trying to get across here. There's an embracing and holding on. So verse 4 reads, Do you not know that brotherly love with the world is enmity with God? You may ask, are we not supposed to love the world? Oh yes, we're meant to love the world. Can I not have close friendships with unbelievers? You can have friendships with unbelievers. But the Bible is not saying that you can't have friends that are non-believers. In fact, the Bible says we are to demonstrate agape love, unconditional love, to those who love us or hate us, those who persecute us or revile against us. It's not saying that you shouldn't care for the world, as the word is cosmos. And we know that's quite a hot topic at the moment climate change and people love the world but people is almost holding tight to the things of the world the world is decaying the world needs Jesus we need Jesus see filio for the world only consequently results in hatred for God see James often draws from his half brother's Sermons, right? And one of them is in Matthew 6 24, where Jesus says this No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You cannot deny yourself of worldly pleasures whilst denying God. You cannot take up the cross and follow Jesus if your lifestyle is in keeping with the worldly lifestyle. See, God has a gappy love, unconditional love for us, for his creation and his created beings. The undeserving world, which is not worthy of God's redeeming love, receives sacrificial love through Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And this love is effectual in calling every true believing Christian, we are reminded of John's word, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into this world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because why? Because the works were evil. See, coming into the light exposes the evil heart of humanity. The world's reasoning is to remain in darkness so as to keep sin hidden. Let's just keep it quiet. But also because they don't want accountability to God as creator. But there's nothing hidden from God, is there? Nothing is hidden from God. You mustn't love the world. That's what John also says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 
How do we reconcile these scriptures with what James is saying here in verse 4? See, Christians are to take a stand against ungodly world system. The system which promotes the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. True spiritual warfare is withstanding sin in our lives and standing firm in Jesus against the world. That's the battle we must engage with the most. That's the spiritual battle. As true believers saved out of the world by Jesus, we are called to be separate. Separate in thinking, emotions, in behaviour, in conduct, in, in service, in working. In separate in how we love. We must be known for our love. I'm so glad to be here. I felt the warmth and the love in this place. Every work of darkness must be cast off by putting on the armour of light, Jesus himself. We cannot walk in sexual immorality, drunkenness, sensuality. We cannot be given to quarrelling and jealousy. But we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To society at this time we'll engage our minds in various things. We see the MS adverts enticing us with the food. I love I love my food, you know. You see the, the little drippings and you see the, the cakes. And then you hear the Coca-Cola adverts. Holidays are coming. It just reminds you, you just you just want those things, don't you? Before you know it, your taste buds are, are wet and ready to eat. That's how the world sometimes is and the temptations. But those Black Friday deals that really, when you study them, are not deals at all. (laughs) It's lies, it's a con. What is the answer to the lure and the pull of the world? What is the answer to it? How do we fight against it? Spiritual warfare. We look again at James 4, 8 to 9. It says, draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Reminds us of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Only he who has a clean heart and a pure heart and pure hands shall ascend to the hill of the Lord. As pilgrims, we're going to the Mount Zion to see our Lord. And so we must cleanse and purify our hearts in Christ. We must walk in righteousness. We know that from Scripture that no one can draw near to God unless God draws near to them. Every human being is born spiritually dead and unable to spiritually discern the things of God or to even know God. Just as the corpse, a corpse has no life at all. No, someone that's, that's spiritually dead has no spiritual life at all. And James addresses here professing Christians, those who are already in union with Christ, but their communion is at odds with their union. Brothers and sisters, when our union in Christ is, when we come to Christ, we're in Christ. 
But there is a communion, daily walking and warfaring that needs to be done in our intimacy with God. That's what gets affected. Christ has saved us once and for all, but we must commune with him on a daily basis. We stand in the pool of the world, looks like this, draw near to God. Let's come. Such a wonderful time of prayer this morning. To come to pray, to seek the Lord. To pray, place our heart's desires and our burdens before him. To just wait on him. When you're weak, he will strengthen you. Look to Christ. Draw near to him. When it feels, it doesn't feel nice. It feels like, what am I doing? That's the safe place. In the tower of our Lord. It's a safe place, a firm place. We must draw closer. We must dwell with God. We must know him sacrificially. Drawing near to God, there is opposition. But you must sacrifice and deny yourself. I must sacrifice and deny myself the things that hold me back. We must let go of those things and pursue and focus on who our God is, our Saviour. We must love him with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our soul, as scripture says. See, the same verse 8 says, What is said of the double-minded, unstable in all his ways, is referring to a previous thing that James mentioned in chapter 1, verse 8. Those that have become lukewarm in faith, in lifestyle, one foot in the worship of God and one foot in worship of the world. That's double-mindedness. Let us wholeheartedly pursue Christ. Let us ask him for strength to fix our gaze upon the beauty of Christ. Everything else is dim. Only the beauty of Christ is to be seen. And we must ask that the Lord opens our eyes to truly see that every day. And to, to each day to long for that. We must cleanse our hands. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Hands referring to outward behaviour, stains, things that ensnare us. We need to have purity of hearts. Only Christ can do the heart transplant that we need. A heart that longs for him and is, is just willing to rest in his presence and to put him above everything else. A heart that's turned away from sin, turned away from pollution, and turned to Him. We must be wretched and mourn and weep. It speaks of godly sorrow, doesn't it? When we've gone wrong, when we've gone astray, godly sorrow turns and says, I am here, forgive me, Lord. Do your work in me, change me, renew me, help me to turn from my sins. Turn your laughter to mourning, it says. Reminded to mourn over our sins. For why? Because those who mourn over their sins shall be comforted. We shall be comforted. Amen. He will come to us and bear us up in his hands. It says, your joy, turn your joy to gloom. What does this mean? The more we deny ourselves of the world... You know what happens? We begin to hate our sins. The denial of our sins at each and every day and focusing on Christ. You know, 
I don't want that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. That's the work of Christ in us. We are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's so precious. Your body is the Lord's. My body is the Lord's. Is anyone here today not trusting in Jesus? How do you draw near to God? Repentance from sin. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour. He can do that. Come before him. And he will have mercy. Is anyone here today who is not trusting Jesus? How do you draw near? Maybe you professing to be Christian, but things have come your way and drawn you away. Once again, repentance. A Christian lives a life of daily repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. It's not about yesterday's glories. Are you trusting Jesus now, this moment? That's what matters. Are you trusting in Jesus now? To repent today. Tomorrow is not given. The last person that you want as an enemy is God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But praise be to God for his mercies. Praise be to God for his mercies. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Leave those worldly ways that have trapped you. You may laugh now, enjoy those things now, but those things, if you want to live the best life now, outside of Christ, it's not worth it. There is no satisfaction. There is no fulfillment outside of Christ. It's a condemned life. Whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. Living in spiritual darkness now and deep darkness and blackness for eternity. That's what awaits God's wrath is one of justice and righteousness. That's God's character. Jesus condescended though to save sinners. He came for us. And he is faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive of our sins if we confess them. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing that, that you may have that, uh, or feel guilty about that he can't cleanse. Mm-hmm. His blood can atone mm-hmm. even the vilest of offenders. John Flavel says this, All hypocrites reject and quarrel with something in Christ. They like his pardon better than his government. They like his pardon better than his government. Are you living a double life, professing to be a Christian, but with no fruit of salvation, no thirst for righteousness, lacking good works that flow from the life of Christ, faith in Christ, repent. Only the government of Christ saves, lordship of Christ saves. Have Jesus as Lord and Saviour. He saved us, but he's also Lord after us. We are subject to him. All things made by him, through him, and for him. But in this world, we have a powerful adversary, don't we? 
And this is our second point. We're standing the pool of Satan. So James only mentions Satan once here um, in, 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 this, in this book. And he mentions it in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, often this verse is given license to professing Christians, you know, that I can rebuke the devil. I can say, devil, you, I rebuke. And that's been taken out of context. When we look at Jude, verse 9, he says this, Satan, he says this, Michael says this, contending with the devil and was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The archangel himself said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't rebuke the devil. So when we look back at James, the only rightful conclusion is that rebuking the devil is directly correlated to submission to God. The rebuke of the devil is not mere words, but by submission to God. In order to resist the devil, there must be first a surrender to God. His lordship, his majesty, his beauty, his glory. The lordship of Christ over Christian's life, over, over Christian's life overpowers any hold of the evil one. When Christ is over you, he is your government. The matchless name of Jesus causes Satan and his host to flee. The presence and the power of Jesus renders captives free from strongholds of the devil. See, Christians have been translated from the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the God of this world. We've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. Satan has power, yes, but it's limited. Why? Because he's judged and he will be finally judged. Satan, scripture's clear on this, on on, on Satan's plan. He, He comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. See, at this temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, he attempted to rob Jesus of his dependency on God, the Father. He sought to kill Jesus by tempting him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. He ultimately desired to destroy the redemption plan of God through Jesus as mediator. How? By offering him the kingdoms of the world. In exchange for what? In exchange for Jesus to bow down in worship to him. But Jesus, our sinless saviour, our sinless saviour, our meek mediator, our righteous ruler and our perfect priest, he stuck to the divine purpose and plan in submission to God the Father in his will by the help of the Holy Spirit. He grew in grace and favour of God. That is our God. That's our saviour. We can depend on him. We will stand against the pull of the world by submitting to the one who humbled himself to die on the cross of Calvary. Nailed to the cross for our sake. He took on our sins. He's death for your death. 
But his life for your eternal life. His victory is your victory. He was taken captive for your sake and my sake. So that we no longer are held captive by Satan. But death couldn't hold him captive. Death couldn't hold him captive at all. He rose again by the power of the Spirit of God. Raised to life. You know what he did? He led captives. Those then, previously, then, now, forever. Those who are held captives are free because of what Christ did on the cross for us. See, our victory against Satan is as sure as Jesus' death and resurrection. There is no disputing. We must submit to God. We must submit our desires and our passions, our suffering, our finance, our jobs. Fill the blanks. What are the things that causes us to sin? What are the things that Satan tempts us to sin in? We must submit them to God. For they do in time become avenues of thanksgiving when we look back and see how far he has brought us from. See, Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, be thankful for the thorns and the thistles which keep you from being in love with the world. Suffering does that. Sometimes we don't know what the sufferings are, but the Lord knows how to use them as a test to prove our faith. And James, all along in this book, constantly talks about testings, the testings of faith, the testings of suffering. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about the testings that can you withstand against yourself? Can you withstand against Satan? Can you withstand against the pull of worldly things? That's a test of true faith. See, God demands your life. Your life as a Christian is not your own anymore. If indeed you are crucified with Christ. The world and all that it offers, as they look glittery, they look shiny and glorious. They're all smoke screens. They hide destruction. That's all it is. Whilst we cannot blame Satan for every sin that we commit, he plays a huge part as the father of lies, the Bible calls him. Accuser of the brethren. He schemes along with his agents to tempt us to sin with our passions. But James is clear, it's also our passions and our desires that causes us to be enticed and lured away. Don't blame Satan. It's what's in us. We're sinners. Do not be proud. For verse 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 10 then says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself in adoration of, of the one who gave it all, who gave himself for you and for me. The greatest gift. During the time of Christmas, a wonderful time to remember the precious gift of Christ to us. But you may say, I, I still sin. I still sin. This is our final point. James, in verse 5, reminds us of this. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He that is God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made 
to dwell in us. See, at first glance, he's trying to find the scripture in the Bible and there's no direct quote. It's quite a difficult verse to understand. So do you suppose the scripture is of no purpose, James says? Do you think that the word of God is not living and active? Do you think it has no spiritual value? And that this word, that, that, that is what the word purpose here describes, right? And what he's asking ultimately is, what is your attitude to the Bible, to the scriptures? Do you take it as precious? What is your attitude to the authority of God's word? Do you take it as true? Do you take it as God's own word or not? But what is the context in which he questions their attitude to scripture? See, some translations have sometimes have said that this is the Holy Spirit that's been referred to. New King James says that Holy Spirit in us yearns jealously. King James Version uses the lowercase s and says the human spirit lusts to envy. And then we have the NIV over a period of time has changed and kind of gone between the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. So it's quite a difficult text to understand. Are we dealing with the spirit of man or are we dealing with the Holy Spirit? I'll leave you to do some research on that. (laughs) It's quite good. But one thing I'm persuaded of is this. The love of God for us Called us from the raging sea of sin. Scripture tells us of God lovingly drawing his people constantly, straying away, but yet he brings them back to the fold. He loves them so dearly and said, No, he creates boundaries in place. Yes, they suffer consequences of their sins, but he always reminds them, even the Israelites, when they were going into exile, he made a promise with Isaiah beforehand. And said, comfort, comfort my people. He'd already sent comfort 250 years before they entered into exile. That's a God that we serve. A God that is jealously longing to know you, to know me. He desires that our desires connect with his, to yearn for him, to love him intimately, to walk in his ways, to walk in righteousness. Our God yearns for us jealously. When we think of that word jealous, we think of something that's bad. But God is righteous. God is faithful. God is true. And he's jealous because he's righteous. He loves us so dearly and wants to know his creatures. It's the love of God. If we know that steadfast love of God is unending and unfailing love has no beginning and has no end. It never ceases. That's the epitome of God's agape love. God the Father through his beloved son Jesus sparks a life dead souls through the power of the Spirit which dwells in the followers of Christ. This human spirit that we fight with when Christ and his work is effectual in our lives the Spirit of God makes us alive regenerates us, brings us to newness of life. Yes, there's still the warfare that continues, but the Spirit sanctifies us each and every day. 
Be reminded and be comforted that in our sins we have a perfect saviour, a high priest that draws us near. When we, we come to him humbly, he's able to intercede for us. He draws us closer to him because he's our high priest to give us help in time of need. There's no other place you want to go in time of need than in the presence of the high priest himself. So thus, I believe the purpose of verse 5 is to remind us that God is the one that initiates the loving covenant of his people. He initiates it and he fulfills it. The covenants we see in the Old Testament with the Israelites. Who fulfilled it? They didn't. He initiates a covenant and fulfills it. That is the jealous love of God. He knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. But he loves us still. He keeps the terms of the covenant perfectly. He fulfills the righteous demands of the covenant Despite our constant adultery, our constant straying away. We look at verse 6 again, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God grants undeserved love by extending his hand of grace even the more when we stray away. But never beyond his spiritual and mighty perimeters. He guards us. But who does God grant more grace to? He grants grace, the saving grace to those he loves jealously. Jesus too has felt the tug of sin, but remained sinless. Jesus was perfect in his humanity. There was no ability within Jesus to sin. So yes, he was tempted, but... There was no sinful desire to sin. That is God that we can depend on. The sinless saviour. So we must come to the altar of Christ. Our high priest. We come with confidence. We come to his throne. Said, here I am, God. Change me, mould me, renew me. Do your work in me. See, if you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Saviour. This message will not benefit you unless you come to the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ is where we find the levelling ground. The cross of Christ is where we find our hope. The cross of Christ is where we recognise how wretched we are. The sinless one who condescended to die for sinners, carrying that weight. Jesus himself wants a relationship, and we see that evident even on the cross as he's suffering. Yet there's a thief that he still wants a relationship with. It's never too late. God is able to save even the vilest of offenders. But our human spirit is so rebellious. It has been corrupted. From birth it enters that rat race of corrosion. It only wants the way of death. But that's not true life. 
The only way to eternal life is to deny ourselves of everything that will close our eyes shut to the jealous love and grace found in God. Every temptation and every suffering that brings pleasure or grief to your human spirit is an attempt to bring you down. It's an attempt to keep you away from the presence of God. But there is one that has laid his life down to give you an eternal life, eternal, eternity, abundance, an abundance of eternal life. The Bible says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. See, our Christian life begins with our human spirit. The spirit of God must regenerate us. But there is a warfare that still needs to be done. And we're reminded in Ephesians that the battle is not us fighting physically, but it's standing in the strength of Christ. Standing in Christ. His life is our life. Our lives are not our own anymore. And so when we warfare, we do it with the knowledge that Christ in us is our hope. We do it with the knowledge that when we, 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 we're not doing things in our own strength, but, but by his resolve, that he multiplies strength. By our, our resolve, he multiplies our strength. Everything that we think we can do in our own strength is futile. But we must trust in him. It's him that works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Every good works should be as a result of the faith in Christ. We don't please God by our works, but rather if there are evidence of true faith. So we walk not by sight. The opposition that we face, our human spirit that's often torn, the worldly things that entice our eyes, but no, we walk by faith in Christ. Looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith. The author and perfecter of our faith. I finish on this. Titus 2 says this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here lies the, the jealous love of God in the war against worldliness. And so verse 10 says, we humble ourselves before the Lord, for in time he will exalt you. True exaltation is only brought about by a life that's in spiritual warfare. And we can't engage in spiritual warfare if we're not spiritually alive. We must withstand the pull of society. We must withstand the pull of Satan. And we must withstand the pull of the human spirit, but cling to the grace that's found in God, our Saviour. Amen.
Thank you.